Okay, all right, there we go. Yes, I am Pastor Todd. Glad you guys are here with us this morning. Hope it's going to be a blessing to you. I'm sure it will. The Lord will meet with us here in a minute. We are starting a new book series. The last two weeks, we studied how to study the Bible and a really hands-on approach to looking at Scripture. And today, we're going to sort of carry that off as we study 1 Peter chapter 1, or first, the first portion of it, at least. And like Pastor Mel said, I gave you a little insert inside of your bulletin to give you an idea, a sample of how you can study Scripture uh, for yourself, and that's really what it's supposed to be. Uh, it's not the law, it's just a help tool. And so I ho- hope it is for you that you can use that study sheet and take a passage like 1 Peter 1 to 9 and figure out how to get some good meat out of it. So I'm going to introduce our theme for our First Peter series here in a little bit, but the title of our lesson today is going to be called A Living Hope. And we're going to look at the first nine verses of First Peter chapter 1. And what I'm going to do before we get into the lesson, is at least take the first three items on your white sheet and talk about some of the background from First Peter, because we're starting a new book today, and when you start a new book, you should have some idea of who's talking, who they're speaking to, and what is some of the background. So we're going to start there uh, this morning, but I do want to read the text. So if you'll join me in First Peter 1, verses 1 to 9, we'll start there. Listen to the word of God. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials." So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is a very meaty book. I hope you have your steak knives as we go through 1 Peter because it's really meaty. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of tell you today, listen, there are no promises that we're going to go through this quickly. We're going to go as we need to go. So if I look into a text like this and go, you know what, I think we can get more out of that. We might go over it again. We might overlap as we go into the next passage. We might crawl through 1 Peter because it's just so meaty. And I hope you're going to gain a lot from it. I'm sure you will. But Did you ever have to gain courage to do something hard? Did you ever have to gain courage to do something difficult? Well, I'm going to share a little bit of a story with you, kind of a silly story, but uh, you've heard a lot about my early 20s. I told you it was an adventurous time in my life. All my stories come from then. So Um, when I was going to college, I went here at Clark Summit University, which was called Baptist Bible College in the day, and uh, that was the first time in my life that I started to date. I didn't date in high school, so in college it was a brand new experience for me. Asking girls out, going out, getting to know girls, and you know, tripping a lot through that process. But 
One of the difficult things I found when you're, when you're seeking to date is actually asking girls out on a date because that's kind of the guy's job, right? Generally speaking, is the guy is the one who approaches the girl and kind of puts himself on the limb and saying, can we go out on a date sometime? So I had to do that. And I don't know what it was, but for whatever reason, I didn't generally date girls inside of my own friend clique. I dated the girls that I didn't really know well. And I don't really know why that was. That wasn't really a strategy. It just became that way. So I would have to sort of ask girls out on dates that I didn't really know very well. I was just based on they were cute or I thought they would be a you know, good personality to get to know. And so I remember a couple times uh, thinking a girl was cute, wanting to take her out and saying, well, I'm just going to have to ask her. And so there wasn't social media in the day. I couldn't bring up Facebook Messenger, you know, drop her a line, <laughs> which would have been classy, right? That's a classy way to ask a girl out. Uh, sorry, if any of you do that. But I used the phone. We had the phone, you know, landline. There wasn't even a cell phone back in the day. How old am I? <laughs> I think it was right, right as cell phones were coming out. I think they were out, but not quite popular. Anyways, what I would have to do is I would have to get the girl's phone number somehow. I don't even remember how I did that, but get her number, call her up, make the request. And it was always an awkward and difficult process because I wasn't going based on anything. Just, hey, I'm Todd in your English class and I thought you were cute. Want to go out. And it wasn't even that smooth. And here's, here's the thing, because that's pretty smooth. But I would call up these girls and I was, kind of, I was an outgoing guy. But when you do this, you're kind of, it's kind of a sheepish thing. You're like, uh, you got to small talk a little bit because you don't want to jump right into it saying, yo, Friday, let's do this. So I call up these girls and I'm like, uh, hi, this is Todd. Todd Walker from your English class? Yeah, 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 that's me, the one in the back asleep. Um, I was just curious if maybe possibly want to go out on a date with me sometime. Maybe I can buy you a hamburger sometime. And usually those things went okay. She'd be like, yeah, yeah, that'd be okay. We can do that. But I remember that being a very nerve-wracking process, just being very nervous about that. And so I had to do that three or four times, just basically call girls and ask them out and I think generally they said yes, but <laughs> they didn't go real well. Um, but this one time, I think it was my sophomore year of college, I heard through the grapevine that this girl liked me, that I didn't know very well. She thought I was cute or liked me or wanted to get to know me. And so the seed was planted in my mind that if I asked this girl out, she would say yes. So I still had to, I, the ball was in my court, I still had to make the decision to ask this girl out, but I heard that if she asked me out, her name was Ashley, that she would say yes to that. So you know what? I called Ashley with a lot more confidence than I did those other girls. And the conversation with Ashley went a little bit more like this. I pick up the phone. Yo, Ash. What's up? It's the Walkman here. Friday night, 6.30, Ruby Tuesdays, don't be late. It didn't go like that. But it was a little bit more smooth because I had confidence to ask this girl out, which the other ones I just didn't. I didn't know what they would say. And Ashley did say yes, and we, nothing happened. But I think we went on once, and that was it. But I had confidence to ask Ashley out. She did say yes. And that's kind of what we're going to today. Is we come from this book of 1 John, which, if you remember, was all about confidence. And this is a nice little handoff from the book of 1 Peter because we're going to talk about hope and courage today because Peter, I believe, wants to give us courage to do something that is difficult, which is the Christian life. So, but we're going to call this lesson today a living hope, and we're going to find it right from the text. That's exactly what Peter says. 
But I need you to explore Peter with me for a minute, because as we're going to look at who is the author of 1 Peter, it's not going to shock you that it's the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter is the author of 1 and 2 Peter. But the Apostle Peter wasn't always the Apostle Peter, was he? He was Simon. He was a fisherman. He was an ordinary layman. He had really no credentials, nothing that would set him apart to be someone special for Christ. But when Jesus called Peter, he did so very specifically. He said, Peter, follow me. If you remember that story, Peter was trying to fish and get a good catch and was unable to do so. And then Jesus said, lower your nets down on the side of the boat. And he said, Lord, we've tried all night, but at your word, I will. And so he dropped the nets and he caught the biggest catch of fish he had ever caught. But right after that, he said to Peter, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And you know what Peter did? Peter left his nets and followed Jesus. He left his nets from all intents and purposes, at least for that time in his life, he left his profession and he followed Jesus full time. That's pretty special, isn't it? That's pretty special for Jesus to call Peter and then for Peter to respond with that much confidence to say, yes, Lord, I'll drop everything to follow you. So, G so Peter began to follow Jesus, and as we know, Peter made a lot of mistakes along the way. He did. Put his foot in his mouth a lot of times, made a lot of mistakes. And honestly, the person I characterize myself with most in the scripture is probably Peter. I would love to say I'm like the Apostle Paul, always committed and devoted, but I think I'm more like Peter, trying making mistakes along the way, and hopefully a work in progress. But this is who Peter was. I want to look at a little resume here of Peter, some things that he did that we were going to remember. I don't think these are anything new to you, but you remember the scene where Jesus is walking on the water, right? He's coming to the boat where the disciples are, and Peter recognizes finally that it's Jesus. And he says, Jesus, if it's you, let me come to you. I mean, that's bold for Peter to say, Jesus, you're walking on the water. If, if I'm one of yours, let me come to you. And Jesus said, come. So Peter stepped out of the boat, put his feet on top of the water, and began to walk on the water to Jesus. That's a wild act of faith, isn't it? So Peter began to show really strong faith in Christ at that moment. But we know the rest of the story. Peter's uh, vision got directed at other things, and he began to sink. He saw the wind, he saw the waves, and he began to sink. And the Lord Jesus had to reach out his arm, pull Peter up, sort of rebuke his faith, and say, Peter, you need to continually see and trust in me. Fast forward in about three or so years, we find ourselves in the garden with Jesus. He's about to be arrested. Judas is going to betray him. And the, the guards come. They're ready to arrest Jesus. And as soon as they put their hands on Jesus, Peter like whips out a sword from one of the guards and cuts one of the guards' ear off. Like over my dead body, you're taking the Lord Jesus away from me. And you know what Jesus had to do? He said, Peter, put your sword away. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. And he went up to the soldier's ear and, you know, made his ear all, all fine and cured his ear. Right after that, Jesus is taken away to be tried for a lot of things he didn't commit. And it's said in Matthew 26, 58, that Peter followed Jesus at a distance. As if to say, I'm here, but I'm staying back just in case. I don't want any spillover to come to me, Jesus, because you're in a predicament here. You're in a very scary situation. And I'm going to follow you, but it's going to be at, the, at a distance. While Jesus is being tried by the Sanhedrin, Jesus, Peter is out in the outer courtyard, and Jesus had predicted that, G, that Peter would do this. He said to Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter was like, absolutely not, Lord. I love you. I'm yours. I will follow you unto death. 
But there he is. Jesus is getting tried. He's getting blasphemed. He's getting mocked. It's a really scary situation. And three times in the outer courtyard, someone comes up to Peter saying, Peter, aren't you with Jesus? Aren't you one of his guys? Yeah, you're, you're one of his disciples, aren't you, Peter? And Peter goes, no, not me. Mistaken identity. Got the wrong guy. It's not me. Three times in a row. To the last time, he's like profaning, like, it is not me. I don't know the man. Jesus looked at him, the rooster crowed, and Peter wept bitterly. But that's not the end of the story of Peter. In fact, this is why it's so awesome that Peter wrote this book, is because Peter matured slowly, gradually. And over time, he showed incredible loyalty, faithfulness, devotion to the Lord, didn't he? And there was a time in the scriptures where Jesus said to Peter, Peter, I'm changing your name from Simon to Peter, because Peter means rock. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Upon you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. You're going to be one of the forerunners of my church. And that's kind of what we're talking about here. This is the writer, the author of 1 Peter. Thanks to the grace and the call of God, Peter stayed faithful to Christ. He became the primary apostle of Christ by the time he wrote this letter. And an apostle was a really important role. It was a man specifically chosen by Christ with a special task of carrying the gospel to the nations, and he was given supernatural power from God to do things like heal people. And Peter was one of those guys. Peter got that supernatural power and that calling. So Peter's one of the greatest stories of redemption and maturity in the entire scripture. He really is. Because he came a long, long way. and He's the one who penned this letter, most likely from Rome, he calls in First uh, Peter chapter 5, he says Babylon. But if you look into the commentaries, it looks like he's calling Rome the modern-day Babylon. So from all likelihood, he's writing this letter from Rome. And a Peter was eventually actually martyred for following Jesus Christ. That's Peter, in a nutshell. Peter is a work in progress, but Peter got to a really special place where he was doing powerful, amazing things for the sake of the Lord. Who's he writing to? Let's look at the audience here for a little bit. Uh, we look into it, and you, it's likely a mix of Jewish and Gentile Christians. Some commentaries seem to say it's primarily Jewish. Some say it's primarily Gentiles. It looks from all intents and purposes that it's probably both. A mix of Jewish and Gentile Christians. And as we learn in verse 1, these, these Christians were scattered. They were dispersed during this time across what was then Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. And they were dispersed and, and spread about because of the persecution that was going on in that day. It was pretty heavy. And so these people are sort of scattered about in this area, this pretty big area. And the letter is making its way to these Christians who are scattered across the area. It looks like many of the descendants that he's writing to are Israelites. And some of them were descendants of the Israelites who were scattered and exiled there in Babylon only several decades before. So that's an interesting point to know as well. Their great-great-grandparents or whatever had also faced a lot of scary, harsh things. Um, next, they were likely converted through the, Peter, the efforts of Peter's testimony as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that's pretty cool, too. So he's writing to his spiritual children, if you will, to say, listen, here's a letter I need you to listen to. Remember the faith. Remember the hope. And so that's the audience. Some of the background that is also important to know is there was, again, like I said before, really heavy persecution. It was severe towards Christians at this time. See, what was going on is this guy Nero, who was the leader of Rome, was burning a lot of his own town. 
because it looks like Nero had a great lustful desire to just build and build and build. So he was basically doing demo <laughs> on his own town with really no authority to do that except I want to build. I want it to be bigger and better and broader. So he was burning his own town, but then he was also blaming the Christians for it. As if to say, the reason Rome is burning is the Christians' fault. Blame them. And so what was happening is he was using the Christians as scapegoats. And because of this, the Christians were facing really intense persecution during this time. They were being blamed for crimes they didn't commit. Does that sound familiar? The Lord Jesus Christ. Hope was desperately needed for these people. It really was. And as I thought about which book we should study next, I looked into 1 Peter and go, I don't know, are we those kind of people? Are we those people facing persecution and suffering like these people were? Does it make sense for us to study 1 Peter now? But the more I looked into 1 Peter, you know what I said? We all need hope, don't we? We all need hope. We all need courage. And so we're going to look at this, this little section called A Living Hope. But our theme for 1 Peter, for the entire book of 1 Peter, is going to be called Fighting as Victors. Fighting as Victors. And we will explore that even a little bit here today. But that's going to be the theme of the entire book of 1 Peter. Fighting as Victors. Going back to the word hope, you guys know what the word hope means, I'm guessing, but I looked it up in the dictionary and it says it's a feeling of expectation and strong desire for a certain thing to happen. And Peter says that you have a living hope if you're in Christ, a living hope, as if to say your hope is alive. It's not even, you know, just a word. It's not even just something that is dead and and. It's, it, it's something that is alive, like the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thought about that going, why does he say it's a living hope? Because he wants them to know that it's constant, it's ongoing. There's a future involved in this hope. And he's going to tell us they have a living hope. This expectation and strong desire is also alive like your Lord Jesus is alive. So if the Lord is alive, and he is alive on his throne in heaven, so is your hope, Christian. Your hope is also alive. And who better to talk about hope than Simon the fisherman who became the Apostle Peter after a very rocky start with his relationship with Jesus. Peter experienced the real and profound hope of Christ. So Peter is writing from a first-hand testimony of this hope. He didn't just learn what the word hope meant and then wrote about it. He experienced true hope in Christ. So I want to begin here in verse 2. We talked a little bit about the background in verse 1. But verse 2 I'm calling a hidden treasure of doctrinal goodness because honestly I think I could take verse 2 and preach an entire sermon on it. And I debated whether I should do that. But look at verse 2 with me here in a little bit. It says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Isn't that a lot there? The foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. It looks to me like the entirety of Christianity is within one verse. And that's pretty wild when that happens. When you can look at one verse and go, wow, there it all is. There it all is. Let's start with the beginning. God's foreknowledge and plan to save mankind. God came up with a plan to save his people because his people had become really, really bad and wicked and corrupt. Sinners, 
They had become rebels to God, and they were headed on a fast track to destruction, all of us. So God came up with this plan, this really perfect, glorious plan to save his people, and it says that God foreknew what was going to happen, every ounce of it. He perfected this this plan to extreme precision and detail, and this plan was also going to be incredibly costly to God. It was going to demand the death and the blood of his son. But God came up with this plan to save his people. So Peter says, according to God's foreknowledge, to save us, to give us this hope. The next thing we see is the Holy Spirit's indwelling and powerful working in us to make us like Jesus. Do you think that's important for Peter? Do you think it was important for Peter to have the Holy Spirit within him? If you remember at Antioch when they received the Holy Spirit, Peter was kind of like the character we had just mentioned. Not a lot of growth had taken in Peter's life. But when the Holy Spirit came upon Peter, you know what Peter began to do? Preach powerfully, heal miraculously, and be a strong and faithful testimony to the Lord because of the Holy Spirit's indwelling in Peter. And that's pretty awesome, isn't it? So Peter began to preach and do miracles and do these amazing things. My favorite verse in all of Scripture is Acts 4.13. It says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and they realized they were ordinary, unschooled men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Or they could have said, Jesus must be in them. And that's exactly what was happening with Peter and John and the rest of apostles. They were indwelled by the Holy Spirit and they were doing incredibly powerful things that they were not qualified to do. How in the world are they doing these things? It must be Jesus. And that's the next part. Jesus spilling his precious blood to give us new life. Did he? Didn't Jesus have to spill his blood in order for you and I to have life? Because even if God had a plan, and even if the Spirit could come within us to help us, what about the sin? What about the rebellion? What about the wicked deeds we had done? What about the death within our soul? Jesus had to spill his blood to give us new life. And he did. And he did. But he didn't just do this. According to the verse, he also included us in his plan. He's going to give us a special privilege to obey him. To obey the God, the Lord, that gave his life for us and to be included in God's amazing plan of building the kingdom. And I hope you understand what a privilege it is to follow and serve the King of Kings. Is that a privilege? Is anyone looking for a purpose on this earth? Does anyone want a really good and special purpose? There it is. You get to serve and love the King of Kings, the very one who spilled his blood for your life and my life. You get to serve him, and he wants it. I would say that's the greatest purpose ever. I think there's a lot of people in this world who are depressed and even suicidal, wondering what is my purpose in this life. The Christians have one, guys, and we need to spread that purpose around, don't we? If we dive into our purpose, there are others who will find theirs as well in Christ, to serve him, to love him. And there we find it in verse 2, the entirety of Christianity. And I want you to understand that God gets every ounce of glory for our eternal life and hope. Every ounce of glory goes to God. 
But this gift is so wonderful and so glorious, it took the entire Godhead working together to make it happen. He needed God. We needed the Holy Spirit. We needed the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. We needed God's design bathed in his wonderful mercy. Check. We needed God's divine power to come within us and make us something we were not. Check. We needed the opportunity to love and obey God. And we needed the precious blood of Jesus in order to receive a clean heart and be born again. Double check. Everything we needed, all from God, to do his bidding and his will. Do we understand, can we grasp the enormous gift that we have received from the one true God? Can we? That's the point of this passage today, for you to sink your teeth into what you've experienced and what you've received from God. And this is just the beginning, because in verses 3 to 9, we're going to find seven promises given from God to his people to enjoy, to live by, to trust in, and to use to serve the King of Kings. And for the rest of our time, we're going to look at these seven promises from verses 3 to 9. And there's a lot of different angles I could have come from to teach this passage. And I told you, I debated maybe taking two or three sermons from this exact text and just teaching on a few of them. But today I'm going to lay before you the seven promises we see in verses 3 to 9. But we need to start with this. Peter says, God is worthy of all our love and thanksgiving for what he has done. That's what he says in verse 3. God is worthy. God is worthy for us to bless him for all that he's done us, done for us to save us and invite us to his eternal kingdom. May you and I bless him forevermore. So the question I have for you today is, do you bless God? Do you bless God or are you only concerned with God blessing you? Is God worthy of our lives by this point? If you've understood anything about the gospel of Jesus Christ and anything about God's love for you, is it time yet for you and I to begin blessing God? It is. It is. In fact, that's our entire purpose, is to start blessing God. Because by the end of this lesson, you're going to find seven things that the Lord has given you specifically because he loves you. And I'm hoping by the end that we can, we can say in confidence, it's time to bless you, God. It's time that I bless God you with my life. And that's what Peter wants for us. So let's look at the seven promises or seven reasons to bless God. Let's look at these seven reasons together if we have time. Because God believes that these promises will help us live for Christ. And I think he's taken a chance. I think God has taken a chance. I look at this and go, I don't know if that's the angle I would have gone from. If I wanted people to bless me and live for, for my son, I'm not sure I would tell them seven gifts that they get no matter what. Because it, you could look at this and go, well, they could just take the gift and use it for their own purposes. Right? We looked at this last week, how people look at the verse Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If you look at that verse, it could look like God is there to strengthen you for whatever you want to do. And so I looked at First Peter going, I don't know, you need to balance this with some warnings, Lord. You need to balance this with some, be careful nows. He doesn't. He doesn't. He gives you seven bold promises in a row. And I think God is banking that if you believe in and understand these promises, you will live for his son. It's the best chance we have to live for Christ if we understand and believe these promises. So let's look at them. Promise number one comes from verse three. God has caused us to be born again to a living 
hope. There it is, living hope. Its very nature is eternal, this hope. It's a good thing to know. God has caused us to be born again. There's another interesting phrase, born again. If you've been in the Christian life long enough, you kind of understand that phrase by now, but think about that. Think about that. Born again, brand new, new creature, starting over. When you trust in Christ, everything that you've done in the past is wiped clean. And you get to start brand new, fresh, as if you'd never sinned once. You're born again to a living hope. How? How is this possible? How is it possible that you and I have been born again to a living hope? It says it right in the verse, because God is merciful. Because God is merciful and because Jesus rose from the dead. That's how. That is how you and I are born again to a living hope. Because God is merciful, he is full of great, great mercy, and Jesus didn't stay dead. That's how. That's how you and I can have hope. We can look at God, we can see he's full of mercy, we can look at Jesus Christ and say, he conquered death. Now I understand how I have a living hope. What does it mean to have a living hope? Those in Christ have been given a completely new nature and a completely different path with a completely different destination. It says in Romans, all things have become new for the Christian. For the person with living hope, it's brand new. New things, new loves, new hates, new desires. Everything is new for the Christian. Just like Peter. When he was no longer Simon and he was full of the Holy Spirit, Peter was like a guy you didn't recognize. Who is this Peter? That's not the Peter I knew. I knew the fisherman. I knew the guy messing up and putting his foot in his mouth. How is he able to preach and 3,000 souls get saved? How? Christ's resurrection and God's mercy. Why is this significant that we have living hope and are born again? Because it changes everything. It changes everything for those who trust in Christ. And I am a firsthand witness of my life being changed forever by that living hope. No longer are we damned, cursed, cast away, and eternal rebels of God, and utterly hopeless, are we? We are God's children, and we get a special love forever. Everything has become new. We were once damned and cursed, and now we are heirs of the kingdom of God. Do you understand that turnaround? Do you understand that 180-degree turnaround, damned and cursed, now heirs of the kingdom of God? Wow. And it's all to God's credit. If you read on in 1 Peter, which we will do eventually, we'll get to 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter says, Once you were not a people, and now you are God's people. Once you were insignificant fire tinder to God, and now he is willing to spill the blood of his precious son in order to save you and heal you and to give you the kingdom of God and all of its riches. Wow. I hope you can say wow within your soul today. That is the first promise that we are caused to be born again to a living hope by God's mercy. I hope that inspires you. Number two, we have to move quickly, unfortunately. Number two promise is that God has promised us an eternal inheritance that is unfading, kept, and guarded by God himself. An eternal inheritance that does not fade 
and it's kept and guarded by God himself. How is that possible? Here's how. Because we're in eternal union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever comes to Jesus comes to us because we're with Jesus. Or as Dan so eloquently mentioned, we are the bride of Christ. So, I mean, you could say that about my wife. Whatever comes to me comes to Janine. And that can be hard and good, right? The hard things of life that come to me also come to my wife. The good things that come to me in this life also come to my wife. So it is with the people of God. Our life on this earth will look similar to a lesser degree is what Jesus' life looked like. But you also know what we get? We also get the glory. We also get the inheritance. We also get all the treasures of the kingdom of God. Why? Because we're with Jesus. Because we're in eternal union with Jesus. And whatever he gets, we get. What does this mean? That our best life is not on this earth. It's not. Regardless of how good we think we can have it here, we are now living in what I'm calling poor man's life. Poor man's life. Because eternal life is fast approaching. Did you ever find yourself getting a better possession than something you once had? Did you ever get a brand new and way better possession than you had before? What happens to the old possession once you get that brand new, way better possession? You don't care that much about it, do you? Let me give you an example. About three years ago, Janine and I took our tax return and we bought a nice new couch. I wanted one. I said, Janine, we haven't had a new couch. I like couches. <laughs> Let's go get a couch. And we'll probably never do this again or a long time. But we went and bought a couch. It's nice. It's comfortable. And... I was really concerned, you know, let's, let's make sure we don't spill on this thing, even though it was dark brown, which is nice because we knew we had kids. Um, but we had an old couch. We had an old couch. And you know what we did with the old couch? Put it downstairs where the kids play, you know. Now it's like the couch, you don't really mind if people spill on it. You don't really mind if, you know, the kids jump on it. Don't do that to the new couch. But the old couch, whatever. Where before, the old couch was the, was the couch, and you were very careful about it. But now that we had an old couch and a new couch, the old couch just kind of got put aside because we didn't care that much about it. I also had this when I first started my job here at Wyoming Valley Church. I had this smaller tablet. You see this tablet I preach from. I had this smaller version of it. It was kind of like a budget tablet, if you will. And Actually, one of my very first lessons and sermons here, while I was preaching, I have all my notes on the tablet. It shut down on me. It wouldn't start back up. I don't know if you remember that. So I had to go based on memory. And I told Janine, you know, now that I'm preaching every week, maybe it's time for me to get an actual tablet, one that I can trust and doesn't shut down on me. And so I did. I got this new tablet, and it's better, and it's an actual name that you've heard of. Um, and then the old tablet, you know what I did with it? I gave it to the kids because it doesn't matter if it shuts down now. It doesn't matter if it shuts down for them. And actually, um, Adelaide, our daughter, destroyed the tablet. And if you want to hear a funny story, come ask me how. I'm not going to share that right now, but it's a very funny story how she destroyed that tablet. But once it was gone, I didn't really care because I had this new tablet. And basically what I'm trying to prove to you today is if we have eternal life fast approaching, what does it matter if right now it's hard and difficult and lonely and painful? If you have two bank accounts, one is in the trillions and it's guarded by God himself. One is in the hundreds and people constantly try to steal from it and grab your money. Who cares? Who cares? 
If we have an eternal inheritance that is secured by God himself, does poor man's life matter that much? Now, it does in the essence that we can live for Christ. That's very valuable. But if it's hard and difficult and lonely and we lose things and we're not as rich and popular as this world, does it really matter if we're heirs of the kingdom of God? And why is this significant? Because our eternal riches and treasures can never be lost stolen or threatened they are immovable no matter how much our boat in this life metaphorically rocks about we will never perish and lose what's most important to us and i put a passage on there from matthew chapter 8 23 to 27 that the disciples are in the boat with jesus a really bad storm comes about and begins to rock the boat and the waves come into the ship and they're all terrified saying we're going to die Jesus wakes up, he rebukes the storm, and the storm goes away. And Jesus is basically saying to his disciples, no matter how much this boat rocks about, if you're in the boat with the Lord Jesus Christ, I can guarantee you that boat's not going down. Our riches will never be lost because they're with Christ Jesus. In our lives, even if they get rocky, God is the one in charge. And he will say to us today, you have eternal security. Our stuff is secure by God himself. Promise number three, moving quickly here, hopefully, is that even beyond our treasures being kept eternally secure, which they are, we ourselves are kept by God's power through faith, awaiting our final and best salvation. Beyond our treasures, we ourselves are being kept. And it looks like Peter is referring to a salvation that hasn't yet happened. That's a little confusing, right? Because I think salvation for most of us is in the past. But Peter is alluding to this final salvation. And the way I look at it is Christianity is one long race, isn't it? I don't think he's talking about two different salvations. I think think he's talking about there's a beginning of the race and there's an end of the race. And there's a, re- a reward for the end of the race. The reward for the end of the race is your final full salvation. And from that moment on, you're in the kingdom of God. And when we do that, when we cross the tape on the other side, the reward will be ours forever. But how is it that we are kept secure by God? Here's how. Here's how. Because God is our Father. The one true God is our Father. That's how we're kept. It's also true that God is almighty. So our father has all power. He's almighty. He's able to keep you. What else? God's love is steadfast and immovable. He has the amount of love to keep you. Because sometimes we don't make ourselves very keepable to God, right? Sometimes you could look at me and go, why would you keep him? Just let him go. Find somebody better. Peter could have been in that case. And God says, no, my love is steadfast and immovable. They're my children, and I have all the power in the world. They will not be lost. What does this mean? If we have faith in Christ, we are Christ's reward for his sufferings. Do you know that? Do you know when you get to the other side, Jesus' reward for dying on the cross is you and I. And he wants us, and he's going to get us. And we are going to be his reward for his payment on the cross. And everything that Jesus gained on the cross will never be lost over God's dead body. That's never going to happen. Jesus will never lose what is rightfully earned 
by his spilling his blood on the cross. We have insurance, right? In this, in this life, we put insurance on things that we think are important. We in Christ have the best insurance plan ever. Ever. If you belong to Christ, God will never let what belongs to his son be lost or stolen. And you belong to his son. Do you see that? You will never be lost or stolen because you belong to Jesus and God loves Jesus more than anything. God is our security system. Better than ADT, right? God is our security system. God, the one true God. So why is this significant? We are fighting a very hard battle in this life. We are. It's against sin. It's against the devil. It's against the world. But we are fighting from a place of victory, certain victory. And God wants us to have courage and confidence because we're already victors, already won, already have won. We are fighting from a place of victory. And that's the theme of our first Peter lesson is fighting as victors. And this one thing that we talked about, this security, this reward, there's one single thing that is conditioned upon faith in Christ. That's it. If you have faith in Christ, you are a winner, you do have a reward, and you are being kept secure by God himself. Because Jesus is big, bigger and scarier than our enemies by a lot. And that's good to know. Remember when the Israelites in the Old Testament went into really hard battles and they were greatly outmatched and you're wondering, how are they going to pull this one off? But they did, time and time again. They won. Do you know how that was? God fought for them. And when God fights for you, you win <laughs> every single time. So that's promise number three. Not only are treasures kept, but we ourselves are kept. Promise number four is that these promises that we're looking at today, God's promises, once understood and believed in, they bring about rejoicing. Rejoicing. And I think as you look into 1 Peter, especially chapter 1, rejoicing is a primary goal of these promises. That's really what he's trying to pull out, is rejoicing. He uses this phrase, rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. <laughs> I think that's even better than the Super Bowl winner we'll experience tonight. Joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Why? How? How is that possible? Because rejoicing stems from good things coming to us, doesn't it? Isn't that why we rejoice? The very nature of rejoicing is when you get something good. These promises from God are the best thing that could ever come to mankind. And Peter wants us to rejoice. In fact, I think he would say this. If you believe in these promises and understand these promises, that rejoicing is absolutely a certainty. You can't not but rejoice. You will rejoice when you know that God loves you this way. And it's joy that's inexpressible. It's joy that's filled with glory. It's joy that transcends this world. I hope you have that kind of joy. I hope you experience that kind of joy. What does this mean? Because Christians go through hard things, don't they? We go through hard things. I would even say harder things than the common world does. Our joy is rooted in what cannot be moved. It's causing constant joy and rejoicing even amidst temporal sufferings because the hard things in this life are not that bad in comparison to the once 
received glory we reveal in Jesus Christ on the last day. In other words, we can live courageously when there's no eternal risk. I can live boldly for Christ. Peter could live boldly for Christ because he has a kingdom waiting for him. He has an inheritance that is waiting for him. He has a soul that is being guarded and kept by God. Can I illustrate this for you a little bit? My children, as you've seen probably before these services start, love to run and jump about. But my children are also very, very clumsy. And that's a bad combo. So sometimes at home, we give them outlets, areas to run and jump and be crazy. And you know what we do? We make this thing called a pillow pile. We grab all the pillows and blankets, the ones we don't care about. And we put them in a huge pile in the living room and we tell our children, jump, play, be crazy. Because the idea is they can jump into this pillow pile and not get hurt. When we follow Jesus Christ, there's no chance we're going to lose what's eternally ours. Therefore, you can live courageously and boldly. When God says, abandon everything and follow my son, even when it hurts, even when it means persecution, you can say, okay, God, okay, I will, because you're guarding what's most important to me and I will never lose it. And I think right now we're trying to secure everything on this earth, right? I don't want to lose anything. I don't want to lose what's most important to me. Let God guard your stuff. If he doesn't guard what's on this earth, it's obviously not that important. But he is guarding the things that are most important. And why is this significant? Because our joy transcends the earth. There was a guy in the Old Testament, his name was Job. And in one day, Job lost everything. He lost his family, he lost his cattle, he lost his health, he lost everything that mattered to Job. And Job still found it possible to rejoice in God. Because Job knew a better life awaited him. We can rejoice in God even if God decides to bless or curse us on this earth. Because sometimes you'll have both. You'll have mountaintops and you'll have valleys in this life. But our reward is eternal. It's fast approaching. It's glorious and it's immovable. And Peter wants us to know that. If we don't rejoice in Jesus Christ today, there's either two cases. We either don't believe in him or we don't understand the magnitude of his worth. If we don't rejoice in Christ, we either don't believe or we don't understand his worth because he is so valuable. Promise number five. Earthly trials are actually the catalyst securing our faith to the ground that's the interesting thing about trials. Nobody wants them, but we all want what they produce. Trials secure our faith to the ground. Our faith, once tested and matured, is more precious than the purest gold. We need strong faith. If we have strong faith, it's so valuable in the kingdom of heaven that it's going to bring praise, honor, and glory to Jesus forevermore. Jesus will see our faith that we had in him, and he will receive an enormous amount of glory for that. Isn't he worthy of that? Isn't Jesus worthy to see our faith on the last day and go, I'm the reason they had that faith. I am. They did that because of me. Isn't Jesus worthy of that? He is. So how is it that trials are actually the catalyst securing our faith to the ground? Because God, when he begins a plan, he sees it through 
unlike some of us, I quit a lot of things. Not this. Don't get scared. But when God, everybody's like, huh? When God begins a plan, he sees it through. He's unwilling for his son to lose the reward of his sufferings, which is the church. God is going to keep our faith by all means possible. You know why? You know why? For his son's sake. For Christ's sake. Because sometimes we're not worthy of that faith. But Christ is always worthy of our faith. And God's going to keep our faith by all means possible simply for the sake of his son, Christ Jesus. What does this mean? God tries us. God tests our faith. God matures our faith. He puts it through hard things so that it becomes strong and secure and that one day we will be fully and finally saved. Because this fire that we go through, it's painful, but it does something. It's kind of like when they make steel. When they make steel, we know steel is very strong, right? Steel has to go through what's called a heat treatment. They burn it. They put steel through a burning process. And when that does that, it burns out the things that are weak. So steel gets incredibly strong by fire. Do you see what God is doing? He's testing and maturing our faith so that our faith can never be moved. I don't look for trials. I don't want trials, but I do want faith like steel. That's what God is doing. That's what causes rejoicing, even amidst trials. He's telling these people who are facing really heavy persecution, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. How? Because your faith is being made like steel. And if your faith is strong, it's secure. And if your faith is secure, everything you love is kept and guarded by God. Why is this significant? Because even the hard things in life are a gift from God, if you see them properly. God is doing what's ever necessary for us to finish in his eternal kingdom and receive the eternal inheritance he has prepared for us. All glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the reason for God's incredible love towards us. Why would he love me with that kind of love when I give him a lot of reasons not to? Once again, it's because Jesus is worthy to have my faith on the last day in him. So even the hard things, even the things that are things we don't want to go through, that we say, God, take me out of this. Make it calm again. Take the storm away. God says, I want you to have strong, secure, eternal faith. You need this, child. I can't calm every storm. You have to go through it. Because when you come out on the other side, you're going to be strong in me. And you need to be for this life. <laughs> Promise six, finishing very quickly here hopefully, is that loving Christ and rejoicing because of him with the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory is the validation that we have faith in Christ and that we await this full and final salvation. Remember 1 John, a lot of validations, a lot of tests. Peter is saying that if you rejoice in Christ and if you love Christ, it's the very validation you're looking for that you actually do belong to Christ. How? Because Christ is the Savior of the world. And he's how we enter and remain. Excuse me, faith is how we enter and remain in Christ. Love towards Jesus and rejoicing in Jesus is the way we know that he is our Jesus. You can say today I'm a Christian 
And no one will really question that. Put a Jesus fish on your car, hang a necklace around your head, and everybody will assume you're a Christian. But how do you know it? When you love Jesus and you rejoice in him. So that's how we validate our faith. Do you love him? And do you rejoice in him today? I hope you do. I hope you will by the end of this if you're not already. What does this mean? Even though we have never laid eyes upon Jesus, as Peter says, we believe in him and we love him. Why? Because of the change he has brought to our souls and the inward hope we have received. We have been changed by Jesus and he is worthy. I'll say that today. He's worthy of my love and my devotion. He is. I'm not berated. I'm not badgered into this. I want Christ to have my life because of the change he's given me. And so if Christ thrills our soul and we have never seen Christ, what is the conclusion? It proves we believe in him and it proves to this world that he exists. Why would we rejoice and love a person I've never seen with my eyes? Why? Because of the change he's brought to my soul and the hope he's given to my heart. So joy equals true faith and hope. If you have joy in Christ, you also have hope in Christ. You also have faith in Christ. And if you're joyless today, it's very possible you might be faithless as well. And you need to explore that. Why is this significant? Because it reinforces how beautiful and precious our Jesus is. And it drives us to love and stay devoted to him on the mountaintops, the good things of life, and in the valleys, the hard things of life. It makes me want to love Jesus more when I know that he's the reason I have all of these things. He gets blessed, and we get hope when we love Jesus. He gets blessed, and we get hope. Our last promise, number seven is just like our initial salvation, which I told you is kind of like the beginning and end of a race. We have a salvation we've already received, and we have a salvation we're still waiting for. Just like our initial salvation is dependent on faith in Christ, so is our final salvation dependent on faith in Christ. We will also receive final salvation as a free gift from God as long as one thing is true about us. We have faith in Christ. If we have faith in Christ... Everything that comes to Jesus is coming to us. So this one long race we have has two sides of salvation. It has one we've already received and one we're still waiting for. And we need Christ for both. For both. How? Because Christ remains the only hope for this world. The only Savior. The only hope for this world. If we remain in Christ, we are saved from our sins and the consequences of that sin. But if we're outside of Christ today or in the future, we will be eternally condemned before the Holy God. Do you see how valuable Jesus is? All of these promises are yes and amen for the Christian, and everyone else has nothing. Jesus is the reason we get all of these wonderful things. I'll illustrate this one last time. Today's Super Bowl Sunday. Some of you may care about that. Some of you may not. But there's a man playing in the Super Bowl today. His name is Tom Brady. He has five championship rings already. He might get a sixth. I, hate, I know some of you hate that. But he might win again. But here's the thing about the Super Bowl. Just because he has won five times in the past, Tom Brady still needs a plan to beat the Rams, doesn't he? 
Just because he's won five times in the past doesn't mean the Rams are going to lay down and let them beat him. That means he must have a present and future game plan to beat the Rams, to win a Super Bowl. Here's the thing about Christianity. We've already received our first salvation, haven't we? We've already been saved from our sins. We have all of these promises, but we still need a future hope, don't we? We still need future grace. I need it now, and I need it at Judgment Day, when I stand before God and he has the power to condemn me. I need Jesus then, and so do you. I need Jesus to stand and vouch for me and say, he's mine, I died for him, welcome him into the kingdom. Don't you? Don't you? I need that future hope and confidence. And when we find that future hope and confidence, we become courageous. And that's the why this is significant. Because yesterday's blessings don't help us tomorrow. We need the hope of future blessings. And that's the point of 1 Peter 1, 1 to 9. You have future blessings coming to you. And you know what the goal is? You know what he's trying to drive home? Besides rejoicing, courage, boldness, confidence to stand before the enemy and say, let's fight now. You're going down, devil. I'm not going to lose. I've already won. You can't defeat me. Let's go. Because the devil is a bully. And he tells you every single day, I own you. I'm bigger than you. You're never going to defeat these sins. And we need to stand up to the devil and say, you're going down. In fact, you already have. You're a loser. And I can beat you. And I have the courage to stand up to you today and go forward, even when it's very, very difficult to do so. Because the hardest thing to do is live for Christ in a place where everyone and everything hates him. Isn't it? That's hard. And we need courage. And God believes and Peter believes that by looking at these promises, we will fight as victors. Not 50-50. Not like the Rams and the Patriots. It could go either way. We are going to win because we're with Jesus. Fight boldly, Christian. Run courageously, Christian. Run with endurance, Christian. You're going to win. The only way we lose is if we refuse to fight. If we lay down. If we stand up to the devil and we fight this race with God's strength, it's a guarantee we're going to win. And that's our conclusion for today. God wants us to have eternal hope. God believes that this eternal hope will give us the motivation and the courage to do what's incredibly hard on this earth. Live entirely sold out for his son, Jesus. How will we do that? How are you planning to do that? Live entirely sold out for Jesus Christ. You need God's help, and so do I. You need God's hope. You need God's promises. You need joy that motivates you and empowers you every single day. And you can have it just by looking to these promises and believing in them. And our last conclusion is this. Are you finally and fully convinced that Jesus is worth your all? Are you? Am I? Am I finally and fully convinced that Jesus is worth everything? Who else could love us like God does? We need to praise him. We need to honor him. We need to rejoice him. We need to obey him. We need to bless him forevermore, as it says in verse 3. Because by doing so, we invest eternally. The only and best decision to make after seeing all of these promises is to give all to Jesus. Jesus alone purchased all of these promises for us with his precious blood. 
And I'll say this one more time. He is worthy. And so is God. I hope that's encouraged you today. Live boldly. Live confidently. Rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And bless your God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the promises of 1 Peter 1. We need them, Father. And you've taken a chance by saying, if I give them all of these gifts, if they know they have these gifts, they could turn around and abuse them. Or they could take them and love me and love my son and stand up to the evil one and do what's hard, live for Christ. I pray that we would do that, Father. Give us the courage and the boldness and the rejoicing necessary to live for you while we still have time to do so. Build this church, Father, for your own sake. We praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.